This is Coffee and Cardiology. In this podcast, we sit down with the faculty from the University of Washington Division of Cardiology to discuss the very latest in diagnostics, therapeutics, and as a special bonus, we ask what makes our cardiologists tick. Jim, Dr. Jim Kirkpatrick, here with Dr. Bavik Nazur today. Take it away. Thank you, John Michael. Really appreciate you coming here in so many different ways. You're relatively new to our faculty, and it is really an honor to be able to to get you on. I think you are you're going to have the shortest time from hire to podcast out of anyone in the group. Is that right? I I think that's correct. Probably. Well, and he also does have some really interesting history here. That's cool full circle of uh, he's new faculty, but he's been here before. That's a great point. Tell us about that. Yeah, yes. I I grew up here. I'm a Northwest child. Um, But first, I want to thank both of you for inviting me to the podcast and and thank both of you and the the rest of the UW faculty, fellows, and and staff for making me feel so welcome. Um, So yeah, it's been two weeks from day one to day one of the podcast uh, for me. Um, but yeah, I grew up here. Uh, I grew up in the, the suburbs in Renton area and um, went to high school at Newport and I had these grand plans of leaving, going to you know, spread my wings on the East Coast um, for college and then coming back for whatever happened after college, which back then was uncertain. But, you know, one thing leads to another and then it's suddenly been 23 years and I still hadn't come back home. So, you know, coming back to UW was in very uh, many ways a homecoming. Um, but also I, I like to, to joke that it's kind of an academic fairy tale because my first ever research experience um, was in the summers between, you know, summers of uh, during college when I'd come back home. Um, there were some generous mentors here at UW, specifically in bioengineering, applied physics laboratory, and the Center for Industrial and Medical Ultrasound. Who let me, you know, be that uh, fledgling undergrad getting his feet wet in research, you know, just dabbling a little bit back then. And 23 years later, my research lab is now housed within those same buildings that are the Center for Industrial and Medical Ultrasound. So it's been pretty cool. You know, I remember thinking, wow, one day if I can really make it, I'll be able to be one of these PIs. And now I am. That's great. So, So tell us, what were the stops in your circle? From yeah, Renton yeah. to full, full tour of uh, of the U.S. So, I went to college at Johns Hopkins, where I studied bioengineering. Um, and I went to uh, medical school at Harvard, where I stayed for my internal medicine residency at Brigham and Women's. And then I, I was that was when I was starting to get the pangs of missing home, or at least the West Coast, and that was part of the many reasons I came to UCSF for cardiology. Uh, where I stayed for electrophysiology fellowship and my um, my research time as well. My first faculty job, I came even closer to home, and I, I was at Oregon Health Science University, which was a fantastic place to be for the first six years of my academic career, really helped me accomplish all of my early career goals. Um, but ultimately, for, for several reasons, which we can discuss, I fully brought it home uh, in October of this year. Well, that's great. Well, we are very fortunate to have had you complete your circle uh, very recently. You do some absolutely fabulous, interesting stuff. You you sort of touched on some of your training that um, is a little bit unusual for, for medicine, but you have really carried that through 
in electrophysiology, and yet you work with ultrasound, which doesn't always sort of seem like a natural fit. Tell us a little bit more about this incredibly interesting stuff you do. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I love all aspects of cardiology. If uh, EP did not, electrophysiology did not exist as a field, I would be more than satisfied being a cardiac imager. Um, and, I, and I love all of cardiac imaging. And I think ultrasound itself is fascinating, both by the ways in which it's, the, the physical principles with which it's performed. Um, and what many people don't know is ultrasound is not just a diagnostic method, but also a therapeutic method when its powers and amplitudes are dialed up well above the doses used for imaging, it can do a lot of stuff, all the way up to burning tissue um, for ablative reasons. A lot of that was pioneered here at the University of Washington Applied Physics Laboratory Center Industrial Medical Ultrasound. And so we're really at the, 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 the home base of a lot of that work. So, you know, my one of the many projects in my research laboratory does focuses on the therapeutic side of ultrasound. We, you know, we use it clinically in cardiology for imaging, but historically, therapeutic ultrasound was first demonstrated in the 1940s, which was in about 12 years before it was first demonstrated to be a diagnostic utility in the heart. So I, I talk about this in my Grand Rounds lecture, but it was 12 years between the therapeutic and the diagnostic demonstrations. And so we harness that in multiple different ways. Uh, the most a uh, common one that we do in my laboratory is using high-intensity ultrasound for um, ablation. So similar approach to, to burning heart tissue that causes arrhythmias to, to occur. We use ultrasound instead of radiofrequency for several benefits that it may have. Yeah, and that is just absolutely fascinating. There's, there has been a lot of, of therapeutic issues. And with ultrasound, the idea that you can target things, the idea that you can create cavitation, the idea that the energy that you are delivering is different than other forms of energy. And, and I think in particular, what you have, have continued, I think, to pioneer, maybe that's the right way to, to say it, um, is really this, this ablative uh, technique. And in particular, you're, you're applying this to not only to electrophysiology, but also to some structures that, that need to go because they're creating problems within the heart. Yeah, one of the unique aspects of ultrasound as an ablation energy tool is that it doesn't necessarily burn what it's immediately next to. You can project the beam using different methods deep within tissue. This has come furthest along in the brain um, where um, there is a now an FDA-approved clinically used device for deep ablation of brain structures for the treatment of both essential tremor and more recently, just this year, 20, February 2022, FDA approved it for Parkinson's disease treatment. Wow. And so these treatments in the brain are done from outside the scalp, no incision, no craniotomy, um, but the ultrasound beam can be projected deep. Um, it's not burrowing a hole. We rely on this in the heart as well. Uh, sometimes, you know, often in the heart, and for most arrhythmias, we use radio frequency ablation. We just need to ablate the surface of the inside of the heart, what we call the subendocardium in our world. But sometimes we need to get deep for certain arrhythmias. So ultrasound can do that much better than radio frequency can. And in sort of a right place, right time, we stumbled upon a second indication. So in addition to burning the arrhythmias that come from deep in the tissue, when I was at my prior institution, I 
uh, became, I, was, I joined the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy group. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or HCM is the most common genetic disorder in the heart. And typically the heart muscle becomes unusually thick, especially in the center of the interventricular septum between the right and left ventricles. And when it becomes thick in that spot, it can block the egress of blood out of the heart. It can keep from blood from getting out and going to the, the brain and the body. And so patients get a combination of, of really bad symptoms due to that. So we found that we can use this deep ablative approach of ultrasound to burn the middle of that thickened septum. And over time in our lab, we've seen that it shrinks that part of the tissue. And our hope is that if we can continue to develop our, our, um, uh, our technology, and fortunately the NIH has given us the funding and the runway to do so, we can help to make a very minimally invasive treatment for patients who suffer from this. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how this, this works in my brain in, in actually being able to do this and what that looks like in terms of how it identifies that specific spot deep within the tissue. Yeah. Great question. So identifying the spot to go after is Jim's job. <laughs> so the imagers will confirm that the, the patient, you know, has the thickness in the part of the heart, the basal interventricular septum. Luckily, that's a fairly, among HCM patients, that's a fairly common stereotypical location for the thickness to happen. There are other more rare variants of HCM, but typically we'll know from the diagnostic ultrasound where we need to go. The procedure that we are developing um, starts from the femoral vein, so minimally invasive access into the venous system, not the arterial system, so lower pressure, lower risk, from the groin, past catheter, really just one catheter, into the right side of the heart, so no direct connection to the brain the way the left side of the heart does, so low stroke risk. And then using diagnostic echo, which we'll have in our, in our hands at that time, our catheter, which has the ultrasound ablative transducer on the end of it, gets positioned on the right side of this thickened septum between the right and the left ventricles. And we position it. We're developing novel imaging ways of making sure we're touching and we're making stable contact. And then with a few 60-second long applications, we can get the energy to go in the right place. But it really does rely on a good partnership with your imaging colleagues. I guess the fundamental of how does that energy jump past what you don't want it to ablate to what actually the energy is attacking. Yeah, how Attacking's does it? is the right word. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, we, we don't want it to ablate what's right under the subendocardium, right what it's next to, um, because that's where the conduction system tends to run. So one of the limitations of existing HCM therapies is that the risk of damaging the heart's normal electrical system is quite high. Pacemaker rates after the existing procedures are 15 to 20% of patients. So frankly, we are fortunate that ultrasound by its own nature does not get absorbed by its immediate surroundings. It has a natural focusing element. On top of that, we haven't done this yet, but we have plans to experiment with actual focusing of the beam itself. So shaping the transducers either physically or electronically to deliver the energy even deeper, thus further sparing what we're immediately next to and pushing the energy deep. Because some of these heart, the normal heart muscle, the ventricular muscle is one centimeter thick. Jim's seen tons of these in his career. HCM patients can be two, three centimeters thick. 
So we're working on methods to really push that quite deep. Is that just a change in frequency? Is that a change in energy? Like how, how does that work where you can change that jump? Yeah. Um, we've experimented and published on trying to change the frequency, which is the first thing that comes to everyone's mind for changing depth. Turns out it didn't change the depth that much. Um, so the additional things we're experimenting with are different transducer sizes. They'll still remain small enough to go through the femoral vein and different transducer shapes geometrically multi-element transducers that'll allow us to um, uh, to electronically form a beam. And I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole without recognizing David Giraud. Uh, David Giraud is my engineering collaborator. I, you know, as I mentioned, I have a bachelor's in, in, in bioengineering. Um, but in, in our lab, I'm the fake engineer. Dave is a real engineer. In fact, he was University of Washington undergraduate and then went to do his master's in mechanical engineering. And he also, when he was a UW undergraduate, trained in the Center for Industrial Medical Ultrasound. So wow. he's making the same tour of the country that I did. And he and I worked together for five years at OHSU, and we were recruited on block as a team to come back. And so I got to credit Dave um, and also not um, – not reveal the secrets um, <laughs> with this effort we're making to get even deeper than we've already shown we can be. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating stuff. And, you know, it raises the question and it leads into the next question. We've been doing radio frequency and cryoablation for a long time. Why in the world did we not sort of move in this ultrasound uh, sphere for every reason that you mentioned? And then the follow-up question with that is, is nothing is ever perfect. So obviously there have been roadblocks and obstacles and everything else uh, in this. And, and what sort of have you experienced in kind of moving in what is really a new dimension, but seems like it shouldn't be? Yeah, great question, Jim. This is where market forces matter. You know, radio frequency does the job for 95% of the arrhythmias we deal with on a daily basis. And if you go to bread and butter community hospitals, maybe 99% of what they deal with. When we were initially focused only on arrhythmias, and I would meet with our industry colleagues with the goals of collaboration, licensing, and, and commercialization, I would be honest and say that ultrasound's main benefit over radio frequency is depth. And that only applies to a small, as I said, about 5%, maybe 10% subset of arrhythmias that need ablation for which depth is a limitation of RF. When you crunch the numbers and you focus only on arrhythmias, that's frankly not enough to get an existing company or start a new company and undertake the entire R&D regulatory reimbursement spectrum to shift a paradigm to a new energy technology. Now, when you add in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to VT, now your market volumes, the number of patients your new device may help is increasing. And in fact, that's when we started to get interest from, frankly, the NIH, who funded us to, who has funded us to build this for, um, for HCM and VT, but also now some industry partners uh, who I can't talk about openly yet, but now that we have a broader market, and I'll give you a third clinical indication that we're interested in and showing promise. So the transcatheter valve group, uh, I should say field, of putting in artificial heart valves through minimally invasive groin approaches, similar to our ablation, has exploded, right? My colleagues here, you know, Jamie McKay, Christine Chung, they're doing amazing things with these. 
but there are a subset of patients who, while they don't have HCM, have slightly thickened interventricular septa, probably from age and hypertension, right? And because of that, they can't get these valves because once the valve goes in, the bulk of the valve pushing on this very slightly thickened area, not genetically thickened like HCM, but age-related, hypertension-related, is going to create an HCM phenotype. So we have a third indication where our device is actually going to open the door for a valvular therapy that the patient needs but can't get unless we shrink the septum. So once you start adding these up, that's going to open the door for ultrasound to be a um, to to to, have, to meet the needs of the market. Yeah, and it does seem that that is so important for the development of something and the widespread usage and. This is one of the amazing creative things you've done is to look at really two, maybe three different indications as a justification of what's going on instead of focusing sort of, well, it's only for this. So that kudos to you for, for thinking outside the box and being able to, to bring it into that category and, and therefore move the whole field forward. No, thanks, Jim. It's, it's been out of necessity. You know, when I speak with our trainees who want to go into the medical device and innovation space, I tell them there are two paths they can take. They can take the one that I took, which is they think about what is their prior research background, what intellectually excites them, which for me was ultrasound and therapeutic ultrasound and cardiovascular disease, and try to create a niche and intersection for themselves. The challenge of that is, and... Um, has been for me, is sometimes that niche ends up being a small market. And that was my early career challenge in that the device that I iterated as a postdoc and and developed was initially a tiny market of ventricular tachycardia ablation, right? And the subset of those at RF didn't work. And I was forced to go out and make that market bigger for myself. So what I often advise our trainees who ask to sit down with me because they quote unquote want to follow my path is to not necessarily follow on my path. Don't just think, oh, what interests me? Let me make a device that fixes the thing that I'm interested in or make a device that uses the energy that I'm interested in. No, look at what the big market unmet needs are in your field. It's not because it's all about making money, but it is about helping the maximal number of patients. And more importantly, having a path forward it's going to be easier. Not, you're not going to spend a lot of time trying to expand the market of this thing you spent so much time building in the lab, starting with things that are big markets, big unmet needs. And to that point, as our research group expands here upon our move to UW, that's really what we're hoping to do. Um, one of the huge benefits of University of Washington over the two previous institutions I was at, which were fantastic institutions, OHSU and before that UCSF, amazing places to work and train, but both are health sciences universities. And while they're affiliated with amazing university, you know, amazing graduate universities like Berkeley for UCSF, University of Oregon for OHSU, those campuses are not close and logistically they're farther than they even are geographically, right? Whereas since I've been at UW, I've been able to cross Pacific Avenue, literally cross one street, and there I am at a world-class engineering school. And so as our research group and collaborator group grows, our goal is the next devices we develop are going to tackle larger unmet needs and markets from the start, rather than focusing on what is our interest in our niche and our wheelhouse. 
That's a great point. I'm so glad we have that because it got you here. But um, but also, it seems to me like there has been a very constructive um, collaboration across Pacific Avenue that has extended back into history. And it seems like the, a lot of this is what what was attractive and what you are using to to sort of move forward. What sort of lessons do you think um, you've learned, and you've only been here two weeks, but what, what sort of lessons from that collaboration do you think are helpful for you and for trainees, as you said, going forward, other than pick a, a large disease process that's going to make an impact? Yeah, um, great question. I, uh, I'm learning that universities of uh, universities of UW size um, have a lot of opportunities that while they can be hard to find um, are remarkably generous. Hmm. And so, you know, there's two that I've stumbled upon that uh, one I've already started involvement in one that I hope to uh, next academic year, but there are um, entire degree granting programs. Um, For example, the masters in applied bioengineering run through the department of bioengineering, which is a fantastic uh, uh, program. Um, where the master's students have a dedicated one year towards building a project, mm-hmm. right, um, from scratch under the guidance of a clinical or clinical physician scientist mentor. And, you know, I was very fortunate even before I formally started here um, to be put in touch with uh, the director of that program, Soraya Bailey, um, and was able to get in from day one uh, pitch to that group, and I'm fortunately now the mentor of a group of three hardworking, bright, innovative master's students who are leading one of the other projects coming out of our research group that I won't spoil the surprise. Maybe next year I can tell you about it, but it's a, a larger market. Um, similar principles to what we work on in our lab, acoustics principles, but a larger market. There's, um, and I hope I don't get the acronym wrong, but engineering and health program, uh, which is along the undergraduate, graduate, and business school spectrum. It it accepts a broader array of of students um, to take, again, unmet needs identified by clinicians such as us and take take them as far along the entrepreneurship path as they can. So that's another project I hope to get involved with. What what do the logistics of, like, the division of cardiology supporting that relationship, that partnership, and driving it, funding it, what what do those logistics look like? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the Division of Cardiology, from my perspective, has been an, uh, amazingly productive in two ways. Um, they've provided me the infrastructure in which to have physical space. Um, my physical space is in the Center for Industrial Medical Ultrasounds. So I should also thank them for physical space, but physical space in which we can carry out our work. Um, a generous amount of startup funding because, you know, sometimes the master's students need to buy stuff, right? And and the startup funding is to grow um, my lab and our research, collective research program. And then thirdly, they've recognized that this stuff takes time. You know, I've embarked on a very challenging career path and to the point of training our fellows when they come to me wanting to sometimes wanting to follow my footsteps. I tell them that unless they cannot live without being a proceduralist to try <laughs> not to be a proceduralist. So I've gone down the challenging path as an electrophysiologist of someone who does invasive procedures on patients, which is sometimes less flexible time-wise than when your work is non-invasive imaging or and or clinic, which is a huge time 
requirement as well, but can sometimes be more flexible, right? I don't mean that to diminish the hard work our non-invasive cardiology colleagues do. So that being said, um, my my supervisors, my, my immediate team, the electrophysiology colleagues have worked hard to pr protect my time so that I can have regular mentorship meetings with people, that, with collaborators, with the master's students that I mentor, uh, regular one-on-one -on -one check-ins with uh, my engineering collaborator, David, who I told you about. So those are the three ways, space, money, and most <laughs> important of those three, protected time. It sounds like though when you're talking to fellows about choosing their their path and and looking at yours it, it, you do have a trade-off though if you're not that that proceduralist you're not going to have necessarily the insights of where is that gap that's true but there are a lot of gaps that aren't procedural mm. there are a lot of um, diagnostic devices where jim is frankly better suited to identify the gap than i am and so not all medical devices are um, intended to be an invasive procedure mm. they're digital health devices um that are wearable entirely. And so there are a lot of unmet, not every um, medical device unmet need should be identified by a proceduralist. Right. And there are, frankly, there are some incredibly brilliant, non-invasive clinicians who can identify unmet needs for the surgeons. You know, there are many surgical inventions that have been made by non-surgeons too. So uh, there are some people who are just really gifted identifying unmet needs in medicine. So it's problem identifier people. Yeah, it's it's, it's yes. that skill set. What do you think some of those soft skills are? Is it the engineering mind? I, I think I think I, I don't I think the engineering mind gets the device made. I I think it's a real intangible skill set. And I have some mentors who are good at this. I personally would like to keep growing that skill set for myself, finding unmet needs in medicine that aren't the ones that I you know, work with on a daily basis. It's a real intangible skill set, and there are some mentors of mine who are just remarkable at doing that. But another part of it is putting in the time. You know, if you look at the the training program that's actually published on this, it's probably Stanford University's biodesign program, which now is a few decades old. It was founded a few decades ago um, by Paul Yock and others at Stanford. Paul Yock is a cardiologist, uh, um, echo specialist, if I if I if I'm correct, and they created this mantra of start with the unmet need, you know, and mm. and the way you identify that they say is to just go out and talk to people. Mm. So there's this intangible of finding it, but frankly, I think the people who do it best just create a dense network of clinicians and then put in the time to sit with them and say. What's the unmet need in your field of urology? And when you go to the Stanford Biodesign Program, if you're a trained cardiologist or you came from a cardiology fellowship, they encourage you not to try to make a cardiology device or technology with your biodesign project. They encourage you to go and meet with a wide array of people uh, through their network um, and eventually your own, and then just find an unmet need that may be in urology. Just those cognitive dissonance, kind of just bias of you having your perspectives in your field. Now you can look outside of that, listen, observe, and make an unbiased decision. Interesting. It, exactly. And put in the time and have the meetings right. and ask the right questions. So that raises a question for me. When, when you're working with trainees, maybe even not trainees, but seasoned people, whether clinicians or others, 
How do you sort out those wild and crazy ideas that are just wild and crazy enough they might work from the stuff that is just ill-informed and not a good idea? Wow, yeah, good good question. Um, and that's something that I, you know, as I get more trainees coming to me with ideas, get, getting better and better at that. I think step one starts with a lit search, a literature search, which some of the trainees have done by the time they come to us. Sometimes they haven't. Um, but a lot of ideas have been tried, and that can be identified through literature search and patent searches, frankly. Mm-hmm. I think the next step, um, it, you know, what, what, you, what you can do, what, the, what, what you do after those first two steps is quickly try to go to another clinician in that field, right? So if they come, if they come to me with an idea in electrophysiology, I can vet that pretty well. But as I'm starting to expand my own sort of uh, breadth of innovation, sometimes the idea that comes to you is outside of cardiology. And again, the beauty of of being at a large and frankly powerhouse institution like this is there are a lot of people who will give you free advice who are very smart. Um, And so step one, step two are literature search, patent search. Step three is find somebody in that specific field and ask if this would be useful to them. And I would say step four is a market analysis, Mm. right? That's something that I, when I was a trainee and postdoc working on what is now my bread and butter of my of my academic lab, I left market analysis for very late. So I encourage trainees to move market analysis from step ten to step four. Yeah, that really makes a lot of sense. When 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 does industry? Because that market analysis is obviously important for industry support and getting that to market. How, how, when do they get involved and what does that look like usually? I would say before industry gets involved, the co-motion office at UW gets involved. So, you know, co-motion is UW's branded name for the office that does other places would call tech transfer or tech transfer and business development. And um, I've had early interactions with them through, my, you know, my various um, medical device uh, forays. But they're very strong, historically very strong. One of the strongest in the country uh, by any metric, number of companies spun out, number of li- active licensing deals, number of patents. It's just amazing. And so uh, I think co-motion for, for our trainees and faculty is really the node at which you then go off to um, making an industry relationship. Now, some of us, you know, Jim, Jim and I know the Echo companies very well. So sometimes we can bypass that and get a quick informal connection to our industry partners. But for formal industry relationships, I would advise folks to, to go through commotion. Or whatever tech transfer if you're not here. That's yeah. exactly right. But if you're not here, you really should be. <laughs> that's a good point because we have commotion and you and many other things. Great that's a great point. point. So on, on the other side of thing, what about dealing with the NIH? How do you get NIH funding for things like this? Because traditionally – at least NIH has been about original discovery and basic science, but you've obviously been incredibly successful in getting them to sort of look beyond that and fund what you're doing. Yeah, great question. And your question reminds me to the market analysis point that John Michael just asked about. The market analysis is also important for NIH funding, mm-hmm. right? So that's another reason to move it from step 10 to step four, because if you, even if you're going to keep it in academia, you're going to need to, um, you're going to need to have you know, a market size to compel the NIH because they care about impact even for the most academic of grants. So I'm going to break down my NIH conversation into two paths. The 
R01 standard academic NIH grants, and then their small business pathways. If you want to keep your medical device innovation in the NIH, in the R01 academic pathway, then you really have to have true engineering innovation beyond just run-of-the-mill R&D. I'm going to do the market analysis, the regulatory pathway, the reimbursement standard, um, good labor and practices, animal studies. You know, it's got to be innovative, meaning I'm going to truly find an engineering aspect of this device that's going to not only make this device successful, but potentially be more broadly applicable for ultrasound ablation devices looking at liver and, and brain. Right? So we really did that with our, um, with our NIH-based uh, grant proposals, which have been successful for uh, our ultrasound ablation work. Now, in parallel, with the help of an industry, more of an incubate, a medical device incubator colleague, we also have gone down the NIH SBIR, so pathway. So that SBIR grants, which are the small business grants NIH provides, is a whole different pathway of grants. The grant proposal is a little bit different structure. The way they score them are different. But those fund more of a standard R&D uh, for a company, right? Now, those companies can be spun out of academia, and they come in two types. There's SBIR and STTR. So the STTR is a little bit closer to academia. But um, that's another path where your grant proposal is more now along the lines of business development. It doesn't have to be quite as um, innovative from a purely engineering perspective. They still care about innovation, um, but not down to the nitty-gritty of the engineering nuance. I have a, you know, prior to, to uh, um, OHSU and, and the University of Washington, you know, have experience with a startup company in which I've assisted with SBIR grants and have been successful there as well. So the NIH has been very generous and encouraging um, to the medical device field, frankly, uh, both within academia and along this SBIR path. Which parts of these processes do you find the most challenging and and those that you find the most rewarding? Yeah, great question. Um, I think there's nothing more rewarding um, than when the device that you envisioned back in your postdoc makes it into a human, um, which happened with one of my former, has now happened, at least from an investigational basis, um, with one of my uh, uh, original research plans, uh, re uh, medical device research uh, projects. And I hope to happen with the one that we're working on here at University of Washington. Nothing more rewarding than that. And even an inter intermediate step of that, you know, something that you started at a design and fabrication phase, make it into a preclinical study and see it work in vivo is also remarkably rewarding as an intermediary step. I would say the most challenging is keeping up with the med tech lingo. You know, med tech is the abbreviated term of the medical device industry, right? And as physicians, we have a lot of stuff to learn in medical school and residency. And you would think that since medical devices are routinely used um, by us at work, that we would be able to quickly and freely communicate with our industry colleagues. But the complexity of the regulatory reimbursement 
landscapes in particular have created a whole separate language and frankly um, curriculum that is not part of medical school because not everybody in medical school wants to go that path. And so I was surprised when I you know, finished my, my own clinical training and decided that I wanted my research and my um, non-clinical side of me to focus on medical devices, how much new learning I had to do. There are a lot of times at the ends of meetings when I would you know, then call one of the people who was on the broader meeting and say, can you define these three abbreviations for me? <laughs> that's, what, that's why I'm on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's, <laughs> this, is, this is how you learn. Well, that raises the question, do you think that there ought to be a track within medical school, perhaps there are some medical schools, in which you start out saying, I'm going to be a tech transfer physician, and you day one, you're in, sitting in classes helping you to understand at least the global framework and give you the ability to then learn that ever-changing language. Um, I don't think it, I, I don't know if there necessarily needs to be a full track, but I, I, I endorse the following. I think there should be an elective course, and most medical schools have this. Um, you know that you could take either in your second year, towards the end of the typically two classroom years of the first two years, or maybe in your fourth year as part of an elective, a classroom-based practical um, that gave you a taste of it. Otherwise, I love the models that have been built off of the Stanford Biodesign template that many other universities have tried to replicate, many successfully, that allow interested clinicians to um, take an extra year. Um, you know, along the theme of what I tell our trainees when they ask me, a lot of you know, one trainee at my last institution um, at a mentorship meeting said, you know, I, I regret the fact that I majored in biology. I should have majored in bioengineering like you did. And I said, well, why do you say that? He said, because that allows you to do these things that you're doing that, you know, he thought were incredible. I, I think still needs a lot of work. But, <laughs> but I said to him, I said, listen, the only thing that my undergraduate major of bioengineering allows me to do is maybe ask my collaborator, David Giroux, two fewer questions than I otherwise would during a high-level conversation. I still have trouble keeping up at a high-level acoustic physics conversation. And there's not much about my just my undergraduate training that lets me do what I'm doing and trying to do. But rather, I took extra time. Right? I took an extra year during medical school, and then during fellowship, I devoted a lot of additional time to medical device research where I could have been spending getting level two and level three and this and that. You know, in cardiology, our fellows can spend additional time get building their clinical portfolio during their three years. I chose to shut a lot of that down um, during my general cardiology fellowship and essentially do a pseudo postdoc for a whole year focused exclusively on medical devices. Um, and so that's the advice I give to our trainees is to take the extra time. So I think that's how it should be. It should be... Um, one month long elective classes in medical school. Otherwise, it should be a whole year to do a Stanford biodesign type or a UW master's in applied bioengineering type of dedicated project. And I think it shouldn't just be medical students. Some of the programs are open, as I said, to MBA students or people who've completed their MBAs, I should say. PhD level engineers, master's level engineers. And these teams are these are usually team-based um, programs, are, are ideally situated where a team um, combines from those four disciplines. Art history, maybe. <laughs> There's got to be a role there, too. 
I'm sure there's some some way to get into it. No, it's you know it's fascinating the medical landscape and how it has gone from something that's just a, a very I guess it was never totally straightforward curriculum, but entering in all of these other aspects, mostly as elective or mostly as a separate master's training year or pseudo master's training year, something like that. But it allows you to do that in most circumstances. People are, are recognized for their interest and the contributions that they can make, whether it's in, well, maybe medical history rather than art history, but you can end up in these different pathways. I think that's one of the things that makes it such a dynamic and, and fascinating field. Don't, don't, don't downplay the art history. You can find Kriegers there. Well, we could, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did Krieger major in art history? Uh, philosophy and art history. Philosophy. Oh, yeah, of course he double major. So, of course, naturally. Yeah, That's philosophy great. Well, majors. You need more of those in the design application, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely the big picture. Right. Very big picture. That's, well, so what, um, you know, obviously you're a Northwest person. What sort of things do you like to do? Um, when you're not designing things and, and ablating things. Yeah, I, uh, I love to ride my bike. Um, and I'm a lifelong bike commuter, you know, as, as I now have a kid and a second kid on the way. I don't get as much, like, long road bike rides on the weekends in, but I love long-distance road biking. I do Seattle to Portland bike ride almost every year. Bike down the whole West Coast. I biked across the U.S. once. But wow. as I get older, the I joke that it went from across the U.S. to doing the whole West Coast Last year, we did um, the Oregon coast, so from the Washington border to the California border. I joke that my weekend long, or my, my long, quote-unquote, long bike rides keep shrinking. Eventually, <laughs> it's going to be like from the north end of Cannon Beach to the southern end of Cannon Beach, which is, you know, a small town on the Oregon coast. Uh, those shrink, um, but I'm a lifelong bike commuter, so I keep my love for biking by biking to and from work. I biked today when it was 27 degrees out, got here safely. Um, that is impressive. That is very impressive. Yeah. And, um, well, you know, there's a long list of reasons why I chose to to come to UW for this job. But I got to say, you know, opening a bike lane on 520, which was not present in 2016 when I was doing my my initial job hunt after my training was over, but was open between 2016 and now, has been huge. So I ride my bike from our, our new place that we moved into in Kirkland and my bike rides across Lake Washington twice a day. It's a great way to relax and see beautiful view, although every single bike ride has been dark since uh, I started riding, you know, since taking this job in November. Yeah. It'll open up. It'll open up soon. It's going to be beautiful. I, I, I've done enough rides across Lake Washington. I know, I, know what I'm, I know what to expect once it starts to get light. And then in the summer, it's going to be like bright at 4.45 a.m. and light till 10 p.m. So... Uh, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's already is a wonderful bike ride. It's just gonna get better. It must have been amazingly cold this morning because there's a little wind that picks up too, right? Yeah, the wind, um, the wind on the bridge has not been as bad as I thought. People warned me and said, "Oh, it's gonna be the wind's gonna be brutal." And I, um, the first few days I w- I drove in early November before we, um, my bike was delivered, and I could feel the wind pushing uh, my dinky little car around. But something about the way they've crafted the 520 bike lane, like the, the mm. divider shields you from the wind. So the wind on the bridge hasn't been horrible. But the cold, you can't, you can't uncold the cold. No, <laughs> especially this time, unseasonable this time of year. But Remember, I did mention eight years in Boston. I biked through all eight of those winters. Oh, you did that too? Wow. And David, right, David Giraud, you know, my collaborator in, in our lab, um, he's also a bike commuter. So... He and I, when we were debating whether to take these, you know, move our whole research operation north, 
we were charting out where were you going to live and what's your bike commute going to be? And, <laughs> and for me, you know, um, I set basically a 10-mile radius of UW. The bank set a price limit. And then within the confines of that, my wife got to choose where we live. And so uh, as long as I get a good bike commute, I could care less where I lived. Um, but yeah, so now David and I both have excellent bike commutes. I'm so glad we could provide that for you. <laughs> that you. is fabulous. Yeah, you clearly need more bike lanes. Well, and and I know, you know, a part of uh, your excitement, what you built down in OHSU was, uh, in addition to all that you're doing on the device end, is supporting patients with different opportunities of their clinical support, uh, you know, especially when it comes to shock treatment and, and how that affects patients with PTSD. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. We've spoken mostly about my research side, but uh, on the clinical side, you know, John John Michaels helped uh, produce a, a video uh, production that we'll have out soon um, in addition to this awesome podcast. Um, and in that one, we speak about, you know, my clinical side. So um, again, the theme of, of advice to fellows, uh, if you're going to try to do research, whether it's medical device or anything, but serious research as a proceduralist, you really need to, to carve down the breadth of what you try to do procedurally um, because you're not doing it five days a week. You're doing it maybe three days a week. And so to that point, I've focused on complex ablation. And I, I um, that's one of the reason, one of the clinical reasons um, that my skill set was brought over here. And specifically within complex ablation, um, I focus even more so on ventricular tachycardia and the adult congenital heart disease population also hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, but the ventricular tachycardia population, those are patients who have those same dangerous heart rhythms that our ultrasound ablation catheter is seeking to treat. They often live with defibrillators, which are implanted medical devices that look like pacemakers, but in addition to increasing the heart rate, they give the patients, unfortunately, painful shocks to get them out of the dangerously fast heart rhythms. And um, those shocks can be quite traumatic, uh, both physically painful, but also long-lasting psychosocial symptoms that come from them. Um, and that's something that I very rapidly became aware of even during training in electrophysiology is how how patients can be affected by these sometimes in unpredictable manners. Some patients had one shock eight years ago. They still can't stop thinking and or talking about it, and it's still affecting their approach to which they take with their healthcare. Other patients you're seeing in the hospital and they just got sh shocked earlier that day and it seems not to bother them so much. And so there's an increasing body of research how to predict who's gonna be affected. But regardless, this needs to be recognized. And the treatments we have medically, the antiarrhythmic medications, the ablation technologies, um, the high risk ones, the research pipeline ones that my lab works on, they're not perfect. You know, in some patient populations, we're only 50% successful. And we need to be honest about that, that we reduce shocks. And in some patients, we completely eliminate the chance of them getting shocks later, but not in every patient. And we need to not just provide medical therapy, but be there for these patients um, for their psychosocial needs. And I was fortunate at OHSU um, to partner with an amazing cardiac psychologist who Eric Krieger knows, by the way. Her name is Adrienne Kovacs. Um, around when I left to come to University of Washington, she moved back to Canada. Um, but we had a phenomenal run at OHSU where with the support of the fantastic colleagues and, and supervisors, supervisors we had there, 
we built a multidisciplinary program in which every patient who had received the shock would see me or one of my VT clinic colleagues, but also see her. And we've published on that template and the effects that that has had for our patients. And, and frankly, that's something I hope to recreate here. We have early buy-in from our psychiatry and psychology colleagues. We have early buy-in from our cardiology administrators, and it's just a matter of time until we find the ideal psychologist who wants to physically join us in clinic. The ideas for our patients who, as those in the UW community know, come from five states to get one-stop shopping, right? Not to say, wow, you sound profoundly scarred by this. Why don't you see a, uh, a psychologist back in, uh, in Montana? Go, you know, go ahead and find one. Um, but to say, you're going to see me, you're going to see our device nurses to check your device, and then we're going to inform the psychologist who's just in the next room about what we've found and what we plan, and then we'll specifically address um, the symptoms that remain from what's happened to you in the past from your defibrillator. And it's potentially help past patients with this same exact issue. Yes, I mean, I've seen and, and we've published on and presented on how much this template and this approach helps patient symptoms. We've quantified those symptoms using patient reported outcome measure surveys, or standardized surveys that we're bringing over here and we'll sort of be on an iPad for patients to, to do at every visit. And we're hoping to see, as, as we did at OHSU, that the anxiety symptom Sorry. scores are going way down as the patients engage in this multidisciplinary This clinic. is the most significant one was anxiety. Were there other ones that were really impactful? Depression also decreased. And it's important for me to say we're not diagnosing these patients with psychological disorders. These outcome measure surveys quantitate symptoms. Um, So we're not making psychological diagnoses. We're not adding diagnoses to the chart, but we're acknowledging that all of us um, on a daily basis have some degree of anxiety symptoms and depression symptoms. And so we saw anxiety go down. Anxiety on average was higher um, it's a little apples and orange comparison for this group of patients, as you can imagine. The shocks are more a little more anxiety-producing than depressive, but both of those degree of symptoms went down. Yeah, there, there is a long history of sort of recognition of anxiety and depression in cardiovascular disease, but despite that long history, most of our patients are probably suffering in silence, mm. that they don't and it goes beyond, frankly, shocks. It's also people who have been through cardiac arrest. I have a number of patients uh, who've been in that situation. We uh, did a study many years ago, a focus group study. One of the most interesting comments that came out of that was, you know, I went into this support group for resuscitation survivors, and I realized that I was just as crazy as everyone else in the room, that we all go through some kind of, you know, crying on a daily basis after a resuscitative uh, event like that. And they were suffering, and then they realized, oh, this is actually common. This is something that happens. Heart attack patients, uh, depression in, in uh, heart failure is an incredibly common thing. And so it's for us not to sort of recognize this and incorporate it into our holistic care of all sorts of cardiac patients. But I do think the quintessential one is the ICD. Mm-hmm. Survivor, the mm-hmm. the patient who is getting shocked maybe once, maybe five times. Early uh, data, as you're 
aware five shocks equals PTSD. That was the initial, the initial studies. Yep. It's, it's like external. It's like a, it happens randomly. And yes, and, and some of it does, and it's the randomness and not being able to predict necessarily what's going on. But then other people like, may, might even pass out before they have a shock and, mm. and don't, don't even know what's going on. So it's, just, it's wonderful that you are bringing that to our, our system and bringing it back. We do have some people who, who have been involved in that in the past, more from the heart failure side. But, um, but such an important aspect for all of us to consider in yeah. doing that. Yeah, I, 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 I hope to, to bring that back here. And, and we, like I say, we have people eager. If there are any psychologists and psychiatrists listening out who want this to be a niche, even part-time, we are hiring. Um, but I will say one challenge with this is how do you scale it? Yeah. You know, here in a ordinary academic medical center, um, it's feasible to ha maybe have a psychologist next to you uh, for these clinics. But is that feasible everywhere, Right. And so Adrian Kovacs and I have mm -hmm. talked a lot about this. To your excellent point of suffering in silence, um, you can often elicit these symptoms if you ask. But the counterpoint for that is a very busy private practice electrophysiologist who has to cover the ICD interrogation, the medications, their surveillance for toxicities, the physical exam. There's a lot to go through in a time-constrained, busy environment. So if you don't have the time to do the counseling yourself as the, uh, as the cardiologist or electrophysiologist, and you don't have the luxury of having a, a healthcare group um, or a practice that can hire someone, well, what can you do? And that's where the role of these patient report outcome measure surveys comes in, right? They can be administered in the waiting room, right? They're not a drain on the provider's time necessarily. They do need to be scored, but they can then be used in a model where they can't have the luxury of what, what, what I'm hoping to set up here, to then be used to identify the patients who score for at high levels of symptoms. And that triggers a referral to a local identified health, a mental health provider. So if you don't have the luxury of doing the counseling yourself or having a mental health provider to see all your patients, then this could be a way to elicit, elicit the suffering and silence patients and then only have to refer a subset of them who fall into the high symptom burden group. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, the, and as you, you're intimating too, this isn't necessarily someone who's going to get slammed on some kind of antipsychotic or, or even antidepressive medication. This, these are people who need to talk about what's been happening to them. And a lot of it is the cognitive behavioral therapy, which mm -hmm. does take more time, and you do need to have somebody who knows what they're talking about who's involved in that. To the point of someone who knows what she's talking about, Cindy Doherty mm -hmm. um, is a, a senior investigator here, a PhD uh, uh, investigator in the nursing school who has a way longer track record and experience than I do in this exact field. And she's been um, a fantastic mentor and new collaborator for me upon arriving here. I met her before I took the job, and she's another of uh, the long list of reasons I took the job. So we're very fortunate to have her her clinical work is based at the VA, um, but she, you know, she's excellent at, at, at this. And, and I think she would agree that a minority of these patients need pharmacotherapy for their anxiety. I can count on one hand how many times in, in the program I set up previously we had to reach out to a, either a primary care physician or a mental health uh, provider to say, hey, can you prescribe something? And usually if we did, it was an SSRI, just a low-dose you know, as uh, antidepressant slash anxiolytic SSRI. It wasn't heavy-duty 
benzodiazepines or things like that. And what really ended up being the biggest therapy is, frankly, education around, you know, which, again, I wish as the electrophysiologist I had time to provide, but education from Adrian, and, and I know Cindy does some of this in her research and her clinical practice, around what kind of exercise is safe. Yeah. Is going back to work safe? Is sexual activity safe? Okay, so what if you get another shock? What does that mean? What should you do? Um, so if we could have the luxury of time, if, you know, uh, uh, CMS reimbursement allowed a two-hour mm -hmm. visit, I would love to do it all myself. Um, but that's where having partners like Cindy and Adrian uh, come in. Yeah, no question. What, what role do you think uh, patient support groups play in this? I think they can be helpful. Historically, attendance at in-person patient support groups at many institutions anecdotally wanes after the first one. Um, in the era of um, uh, era of uh, Zoom and you know uh, telemedicine, or I guess in this case telepatient support groups, I think things have gotten easier. I was very uh, privileged to be on the board of directors of the Oregon sudden cardiac death foundation when I was in Portland and I formally still stay involved with that group and they shifted to virtual patient support groups during COVID and I found that to be very successful. But as I speak to my colleagues who've been in this field longer than I have, in-person patient support groups, attendance has been a problem. Is there better efficacy when you have a sort of a facilitator, whether it's like Adrian or a uh, another person or just getting people together? Is that helpful? Um, good question. I haven't put on enough to know, but I, I can tell, extrapolate from um, my involvement with the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. So HCM, Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, is a patient advocacy group for HCM patients and is very successful. Probably one of the um, uh, paradigms for patient support group among at least cardiac diseases. And um, my previous institution was the HCMA Center of Excellence, and the patient support groups that I was involved with that I found were very helpful were the ones where there was an education component first, followed by the patient conversation or linked to it in some way. Because sometimes, it, I mean, I, I think quite, quite obviously, it's a better draw for the patients. I'm going to hear for 30 minutes from three different cardiologists and a cardiac surgeon, which, you know, is an example of one of the ones we did first, and then I'm going to get to talk to my peer patients with the same condition. So I think if and when we put in-person ones on here, Jim, we should really do an educational component with a few of us followed by the patient support group, uh, yeah. patterning what the HCMA has done. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at those best practices, best way to do it. Yep. Make it happen. And food. And food. Food helps. Yeah. Zoom doesn't help with the food. No. So Zoom gives you convenience. I think more patients will dial in, especially in wintry weeks like today. Um, but if, if, if we go back to in-person, food will really help. Excited. Excited for the future and so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for the time today to talk about everything. Yeah, thank you both for making me feel so welcome. And to everybody else out there in the UW community, thank you. Thank you. All right, see you on the next Coffee and Cardiology.